Coming to you from Dinah's Chicken in Glendale, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Michael Krikorian. Born and raised in Los Angeles, he's done extensive reporting on the crime and the gangs of Los Angeles, and he has a new novel out, his first, called Southside. Michael, can somebody understand Los Angeles who doesn't understand its gangs? They could understand parts of the city, but not the entire city. And that, that means more than the south side, right? I mean, you, you know the gangs. You know, you're getting to know much more of the city than the sort of fabled area below, say, the 10 freeway where some uh, fear to trap. Yes, but, I mean, the gangs are all over Los Angeles. I mean, it's certain parts, you know, way west Los Angeles, you know, it's not too obvious, but the influence and the tentacles of the gangs reach throughout the whole city. Tell me a little bit, I mean, I want to ask about two different things here, which is, number one, your career reporting on crime and gangs. Number two, the career of your protagonist in Southside, Mike Lyons, the, the reporter, the Los Angeles Times reporter who gets shot, and this, this, begins, this begins the whole involved story. But uh, first, I'll ask about you. When did, when was, what was your first gang-related story? In the newspaper or in my life? Oh, well, actually, this is a good question. How far in your life does gang-related, does, does your getting knowledge of gangs precede your writing about them for the paper? Well, we had gangs in our, in our where we grew up, in Gardena, you know, and there were car clubs and gangs, but I grew up, and I went to Gardena High, and uh, when I was in Gardena High, it was when the, at the time there was a gang, there was a killing on Hollywood Bo- on Sunset Boulevard at the Palladium. It was the first Soul Train concert. Wilson Pickett and uh, Curtis Mayfield. And they were in sh- from Soul Train was in Chicago, and they came out here and they did this concert at uh, the Palladium on Sunset near just east of Vine Street. And it was like the talk of the South Side, at least. I can imagine what it must have been. Yeah. So the concert was in uh, April, pretty sure it was April 1972. After the concert, these three guys were walking across Sunset Boulevard, and one of them had a long, uh, a maxi coat, like a long leather jacket, you know, something Shaft would wear, right? So these guys came up to him and said, I like that coat, you know, and the guy says, I like it too. He said, you know, you don't understand, I want that coat. And... uh, his friend, who wasn't wearing a leather coat, who had a suit on, who was a high school football player from L.A. High, dad was a lawyer, his name was Robert Ballou Jr., he came back, and there's a little confusion about what happened, but he, he went a little past them, and he was stomped to death right there. And because of where it happened on in Hollywood, it was like big news. I have the paper clippings from the Herald, and I remember it, and we remember it, and it was this little-known gang at the time. They're called the Crips. And at the time, there used to be one gang called the Crips. At this time, there was the East Side Crips, Raymond Washington. That was the founder of the Crips. There was the West Side Crips and the Compton Crips. So it was such big news that um, it sort of became a recruitment for the gang. And they that's the very story that opened up the eyes, opened up the eyes of future gang members to this gang. Well, in, it would have happened. This is how it happened in terms of, you know, in, in Watts, South Central, 
you know, you know, their trips were already no, you know, just the rest of the city hadn't heard about him. I mean, the uh, detective that I interviewed, I'm working on a story about this. He was in an interview room with the uh, somebody, a witness, and the witness told him. You know, I don't know anything. His grandma was there to witness. His grandma says he slapped him. Says, "Tell the man what you know. Tell the man what you know." He slapped him again. The detective say, "Whoa!" And finally, he said it was the Crips. And then the detectives are like, "What's the Crips? You know, what are Crips?" Anyway, which they never ask now. That's yeah. for sure. The gang grew, you know, in part because of the publicity. You know, hey, it's cool to be a Crip. You know, and they took over a lot of small gangs. And some gangs resisted, and they eventually formed a loose confederation called the Bloods. You know, there is no gang called the Bloods. It's a confederation. There is no more gang called the Crips. It's 200, 300 gangs called the Crips, and they fight each other. So when people they ask me, you know, they say, uh, if I say I write about crime or I write about gangs, you know, if they're a little old lady from Iowa, they'll say the Crips and the Bloods, right? But and, even they know those names. Yeah, I'll say, yeah, I don't want to get into it. You know, no, it's, you know, 6-0 and, you know, right. rape and all that. Right. Crips kill Crips, Bloods kill Bloods, as, as well as yeah. on each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, what was your, from what perspective were you viewing this story as it happened in 1972? I was just, you know, high school student, and, you know, just, uh, and I had seen and heard about the Crips, so, you know, just... Kind of, uh, you know, it was big news in Los Angeles. Yeah. Was it what fascinated you about gangs to begin with? Was it from then on? Were you were you watching what was going on with gangs, or was it later? Was it only later? You couldn't really help but notice back then. You know, about, you know, you hear more and more about it. You know, our school, Gardena, had two uh, some Crip gangs and a Mexican gang called G13, mostly Mexican, and. Uh, Plus, plus the movies, you know, when you're a kid, you know, all the old movies are kind of, you know, it's not gang-related, but, you know, Hard Times, you know, Dead End Kids, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, <laughs> all, the, all the way back front, you know, that's my favorite movie, you know. At the time, in high school, did, did these gangs seem like an actively threatening presence to you, or just kind of like, those, those are those guys over there? It, it wasn't threatening to me. My, I, on our street, in fact, it's in the book, uh, St. Andrew's Place. Uh, we had a, my neighbor was uh, the Samoan family, and there was a guy that lived there named Blinky, and he was, to this day, uh, about as, I don't know if you could cuss on your show, but he was the baddest motherfucker, you know. And, I mean, he, he could, nobody would bother St. Andrew's Place. Blinky was there. Blinky went on to be a Marine, and I remember when he came home from the Marines, he was a, a Marine recon guy, and it just when him and his, he was Samoan, but he wasn't a really wide Samoan. He was like about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, 240, just, and fast. And when he came home in that Marine uh, uh, uniform, you know, the name came to the neighborhood. It was like, what a sight, you know, <laughs> Blinky. I got to track him down. Tell me how you got from there to, to having the desire to, to write about gangs in a journalistic way. Well, I, I didn't. I mean, I wrote. I always loved to write, make up stories and write. And uh, briefly, it was on the school paper just for my junior year, sports editor. And... Uh, we won the city championship in football one year. But it, I, I like to write, and then I, I would send out, you know, 
queries to magazines and get all those rejections, you know, just, you know, the nice rejections and some just straight-out rejections. And finally, I, I got a thing with Cycle News to cover a motocross race in Santa Maria. And that was my first, very first byline. And then I wrote a fiction story for Cycle News, and they don't don't publish fiction. And they, they took it, you know, and I it was... Uh, it was such a good feeling to see that story in the Cycle News. It was about a famous old uh, motor, Belgian ro- motocross racer, Joel Robert, him and Roger de Coster. So anyway, that was, I think I got $20, and that was uh, uh, quite a thrill. Did they say what about it made them want to run their first piece of fiction ever? I, I don't know if it was their first piece. Oh. I've never seen any fiction in right. there. It was 1973. It's a rarity in any case, but yeah. what something about it made them want to run it. I mean, it was such a... <laughs> I don't know, uh, unusual piece and just something that hadn't been done. It was about how uh, this famous motocross racer who won all these championships was having a horrible year and a you know, combined mafia of motocross racers had you know, infiltrated his system. And, right. and it was bizarre. I, I still have that story. Now what, what made you want to write about a subject you'd been covering journalistically with fiction as well? What made you think, you know, there's something I want to... I want to talk about this, but I want to, I want to be able to combine real and imagined. Do you know what I mean? What what made you want to do that as well? Typically, the uh, the border is, is starker, journalist to fiction writer, or maybe it's not. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I just you know you like the truth, like the history, and then to modify the history and make it up was just so much fun. Work from a basis of truth. Yeah, I mean, work from a basis of truth. The book is that way. You know, I mean, it's a fictional book. You know, I didn't get shot. But uh, and I'm not ruining anything because that happens in the first few yes. pages. Yes. But um, you know, it's just nice to play with history, and I love history, and I love fiction. So, in the book, early on in the book as well, there's a few points thrown out about gangs in Los Angeles that are just basic things people don't tend to know if they're not covering gangs, if they don't watch gangs, if they don't live near where the gangs are or go near where they are. You know. Uh, the people who would say, down below the 10, that's where the gangs are. I stay away from there. You know, they don't know that, for example, another major dividing line is the is the 110, the Harbor Freeway. Uh, the, the gangs themselves see that as a as a great divide, do they not? The dividing line, you know, they're in Los Angeles, there's a lot of east sides and a lot of west sides. Right. You know, I mean, to some people, Highland is the east side. Yes. You know? Some people the 405 divides it. Some people the 405. I have a friend, Bobby. He he says nothing uh, east of Lincoln. You know? That's bold. Yeah. But, uh, and the traditional east side to me, growing up here, east, is east of uh, the L.A. River, downtown. But in, in the south side... The Harbor Freeway sort of divides it. Some people might say Broadway, but the Harbor, the West Side, Hoover Street is the West Side. Vermont, Western, Normandy, they're all West Side. And you could tell by the, the like the writing on the wall, WS Hoover Street, and a West Side Hoover. Right. These things are these qualities are there. They're indicated. They're there. Yeah. And the East Side is the you know like uh, if you ask somebody from 88th and Central, which plays a key role in my book. They'll say they're from the east side. Right, right. It's all, it's, there's different psychological territories, you might say, in Los Angeles. Where you're based determines what you think Los Angeles is, how you carve it up. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's, 
you know, a lot of east sides, west sides. Right, right, right. Growing up in Gardena, how did you how did you conceive of Los Angeles? What did the map look like to you then? And did you think of yourself as being on the south side, being in something separate from that? What, where did you where would you say you were? I, I just didn't think of it that way. I just thought it was, you know, Gardena, and I thought it was St. Andrew's place. We had this, this mix in our neighborhood, of uh, ethnically mixed neighborhood. And uh, what, what ethnicities were there? Huh? What ethnicities? Eth- what ethnicities were there? Well, I'm talking about Samoans, you know, Mexican Americans, Japanese Americans, Filipinos. Uh, I, I said it in a book. If there's uh, Jews, and I didn't know they're Jews. They just looked like white people to me. You know, they had blue Christmas lights, and my dad, you know, told me about blue Christmas lights. They like blue. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, Armenian, me. We were the only Armenian family. Uh, but, you know, white people. And at school, black people. We didn't have any black people on our block, but it's just a good mix of people, and everybody got along, and, you know, we just played football, you know, in the street every day, you know, baseball. It's one of the, one of those settings in Los Angeles where there's all types, all ethnicities, and they really do have to get along. They're not in their own separate areas like you see in some other parts of Los Angeles, right? There's not that sort of voluntary, almost, segregation. Yeah, I mean, I really learned about, like, at Watts, you know, I mean, that's where I kind of very dear close to me in terms of my reporting and but a connection deep connection to Watts I mean I'm there I was there yesterday and uh, when I was on my 11th birthday August 12, 1965 we had we were in a Pirates we played baseball at the park Recreation Park on Normandy and we won our park championship you know I was first baseman relief pitcher all star I do say and uh so we're going to go out and play for the city championship. On August 12th, our coach, Charlie, calls us all together. And I still remember almost within a matter of feet where we were. And I'm thinking, like, oh, he's got everybody together for my birthday, you know? And he says the city championships have been canceled. Riots broke out in Watts last night. So that was sort of my first, you know, Watts connection, you know, and then... Uh, my dad, during the ride, my mom, mom's parents lived in uh, Eagle Rock, so we would drive along the Harbor Freeway to go visit him. That went, and then my dad, we had a station wagon. My dad made me and my sister Janine lie on the back, you know, lie down, you know, because there was get down on the Harbor Freeway. My my sister, she always said, like, that's all right, but how about if you get hit and you're driving and we crash? So, uh, I mean, me and Watts go back. Like, a few years later, my cousins, uh, Dave and Jeff, we were, jumped a freight train in Gardena. And uh, it was one of them freight trains that have a, had a caboose. I don't know if most freight trains had it, but this one did. So we jump on it, and a guy, train man, gets comes out, and he goes, I don't care if you guys are on the train, I just, but I want to let you know this train is going to Watts. Right. We jumped off. You know? <laughs> Which, why going? This train's going to Watts. To you meant what at that time? It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you have friends who went into Watts and had a bad time, had a bad experience, or just it was it was just the word on the street? Just Watts, you know. Back this is you know a couple years after the rise, three years maybe, and you know Watts had a world famous reputation as a rough place. You know, still does. But about 
maybe fast forward eight years from that. I'm, I'm working in Gardena on Western Avenue, and a friend there says, you know, I'm having a party tonight. Why don't you come? And he says, I got to tell you, it's in Watts. And I went. And I had a great time, and, you know, I've been coming, going there ever since. I see. From that point, that party, you realized... Not that Watts was com a completely harmless place, because we know it's not completely harmless, but you realized what about it? I had fun, you know. You know, it was like I was, you know, it was exciting to be there, and I had a good time, and people were good, and it was dangerous. You know, there was that element, too. And I kind of stuck out with my complexion. <laughs> I mean, it's... I can't tell on the radio, but you know, I'm not the darkest guy in town. <laughs> I wonder, though, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like Watts is one of those places, and I mean, I'm, I'm down there with some frequency, too, to take friends to Watts Towers, for example, or to eat at the, uh, Watts, the Watts Coffee Shop, the one that's inside that school there, which I like a lot. Um, it feels like it's, it's safer to be a total outsider in Watts than to be an insider, almost. I mean, when you hear about, tell me if this is true or not, the perception is it's more dangerous to be an insider in Watts in that, you know, especially if you're a gang member, but if you live down there, you have a higher chance of on any given day having trouble than if you're someone from as far west as you want to go. Is that true? Well, the insiders are in Watts during the day. You know, they're not there at night usually. I mean, the outsiders. Like, you, you don't go to the Watts Towers at night. or you don't. Yeah, just, it's yeah. not open at night, certainly. Right, but you don't go to Nicholson or, you know, Drape Street at, at night. So, think about Watts that... Uh, Watts is the proudest community in Los Angeles. I don't think that it's close. I mean, they, they, uh, they're just proud to be from Watts. There's a sense of community that I don't see anywhere else in town. I was at a party, uh, this was like a year ago, at some somebody's house in Pasadena, friend's house, and I was sitting next to a guy, and like I always do, he said, where are you from? You know, and he kind of hemmed and hawed, and I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm from Beverly Hills. You know, like he's... Shamefully. Yeah. And I said, you know, you're from like the city that people like kind of sort of dream about living in and you're ashamed of it but I, I go to Watts and if you ask somebody from Watts where they're from they're so proud I'm from Watts you know it's a, just this community people know each other I was there the other day they had a, a bunch of people take they got a bus ride together these you know went out to the uh, just to get away for the elders and some of the kids you know how did you get to how did you get from writing about cycle races to writing about murders and gang affairs? Well, the, the key element is my cousin Greg, Greg Krikorian, who worked at the Times. Uh, he had worked at the Herald Examiner, and he was like the real journalist in our family. You know? um, and he worked at the Times, and I had been writing, but not, you know, ever since that cycle news thing, I don't know if I had a, a piece and I got away from writing I'd still write but just for myself and I, I would eat well though I would uh, that was my thing one of my things was going to restaurants you know I mean How I could it not be in Los Angeles yeah but now I mean I would go to Europe to eat you uh, know I'd save up money I worked at uh, that's real eating yeah I worked at uh, Hughes Aircraft for a while and I, you know I made decent money so I was going to uh, you know I'd go to eat I'd eat well and uh, so one, they needed somebody to write a, a, a small restaurant reviews in the in the different sections, like the South Bay section of the Times. They did, back then, they had the City Times, South Bay, they had one in Long Beach. So my cousin said, "My cu 
my cousin, him, me, you know, knows about restaurants. Let him write one. So they, they said, well, try one out. It was the Spoon House. It's a Japanese uh, spaghetti house on uh, Redondo Beach Boulevard. still there, Gardena. So I wrote a review for that, and uh, they liked it. So I started doing that, and I got $60 a review, you know, because I had to pay for my own food. Right. I remember one time I went, I spent $70 on food. <laughs> so I was down 10 bucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Only $10 out of pocket. Yeah. Not so bad. So it, and it was a nice... Uh, you know, it felt good to get that byline, you know. It must have taken you all over town, too. Well, it first started in the South Bay, and then it was in the Southeast, which was Long Beach, and uh, and then uh, downtown, so not too much. But I, I, would, I would always go drive around anywhere. For years, I worked as a messenger, you know, driving, uh, delivering packages, so I knew the city well that way. Everything you did took you around. Yeah, I know town well. And then I, uh, from there, they, you know, I, it became a regular thing. You know, sometimes it'd be two restaurant reviews a week. And then they needed a similar thing for the city hall, city council, just to digest, you know, like, a, you know, talk about, a, you know, a paragraph, what, what they did, you know, construction on a new on-ramp or a reward offered for a killing. So I got, that got me into the city council. Which also got me into the building because I had a, uh, I worked down at the Times in the office. Right, right. You're not a far walk from City Hall when you're at the Times. Yeah. All this time you were writing about other things. I mean, were you looking to get into writing about crime? Were you thinking, you know, it'd be really, it'd be really fascinating to write about the gangs, to write about where that type of action is, or were you not thinking about it? I, I really wasn't uh, thinking about it, writing about it as a journalist. You know, it wasn't for my cousin Greg. Like I said, I wouldn't. You wouldn't be talking to me, probably. So I was writing fiction and not getting anywhere, and you know, but not writing, you know, that much. You know, was working and having fun and traveling and kind of enjoying life, experiencing life. You know, which is good for a writer. Right, it's certainly a necessity for any kind of writer, but a fiction writer especially. Yeah. Tell me what 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 is it? How is how do you think? Profiling a gang member differs from profiling any given celebrity, for example. Is it is a profile a profile when you're dealing more with... More interesting. More interesting, certainly. Are, when you're dealing with gangs and gang members, are you doing something different in kind than other types of journalism? Or just doing what? something different in kind than other types of journalism? Is it completely different, or is it just applying journalistic methods to gang-type subjects? Well, I, I wouldn't know the other end of like yeah. uh, talking to a celebrity. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, I mean, I see them at uh, the restaurants, you know, the restaurant, and uh, I don't know. It's just that's a different world. I mean, I'm not enthralled with you know somebody that pretends to be uh, a killer as opposed to somebody who is a killer. You know, <laughs> you know, like the governor here got elected because people thought he was the Terminator. It's pathetic, you know. And, uh, I see, yeah. I see what you mean. Tell me about, tell me about some of the first killers you talked to in person. Well, this the way I got into covering Watts was uh, they needed somebody, but there was a killing. The LAPD had killed a guy in Jordan Downs. This guy named Chubby. This was like ninety in the nineties, sometime. And he was, I think he was on PCP or something like that, and he. Uh, he had a knife and he was cutting himself so they the story goes you know don't 
they didn't want him to hurt. The quote was the good quote from the lady at Jordan Downs was, you know, they didn't want to hurt. The police didn't want him to hurt himself, so they killed him. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. And the projects were up in arms, and I, I, nobody wanted to go there. And I said, I'll go. So I went down there. I got the story, you know. And um, that's how, you know, I started covering Watts, really. Me and Matea Gold. Matea Gold, she works for the uh, Washington Post now. She just joined there a few months ago. She was my pod mate, and she was, we joked that she was the East L.A. bureau chief, and I was the Watts bureau chief. This is, this is a concept, or that's, that's a term you use in Southside, pod mate. You know, you get somebody, what, what, first of all, what is a pod, and how do they assign your pod mate at a paper? I, I, I'm not sure how they assigned it. I, I had a, a good, me and Matea had the best one because we had a, we were right near the bathrooms, and everybody would come by, just in the time, and everybody would, uh, you know, have to go to the bathroom and stop by and then we had a bulletin board that we I was close with the photographers there especially Carolyn Cole and Clarence Williams and other photographers there, Gennaro and they would put up their photographs they didn't get into paper and it would be like a you know a bulletin board of photographs right by me and Matea's desk and then on top of it I would go to uh, Phillips Barbecue and uh, I would put the ribs in my the drawer of my desk, you know, and people would walk by and smell the ribs. I remember, like Bob Sipchin, I remember he'd just walk by and open my drawer and take a rib out. So we had a cool area of the pot. It wasn't like, you know, where Bill Boyarski, the editor, city editor was, with, you know, all the good reporters, but, uh, you know, it was fun. We had some fun there. Now, Mike Lyons, the protagonist of Southside, is also a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Tell me about uh, what it's like in his pod. The main thing is, you know, his beat is sort of forgotten. And you know, there's some truth to that, you know, that the people in his beat matter as much as the people in Homeby Hills. And that's uh, kind of what drives him. It's uh, that they matter. It's like, you know, I remember Michael Connolly's main guy, Harry Bosch. I think his mantra is everybody counts, you know. Michael Lyons covers the South Side. He, and it's, it seems, well, you lay it out in the book. The calculus is like, if there's a killing on the South Side, okay, but who got killed? And, you know, if the killing happened in, if the killing happened somewhere farther north, farther west, then we give it more space in the paper. You know, the, the, the how, how does it work? The, the, uh, if there is a murder, the farther south it is, the less space it gets. The farther north it is, the more space. But other things as well. You know, it's it's. Tell me, tell me what's what's most illustrative about that sort of journalistic phenomenon where you know if it's if someone if someone white gets killed on the south side, you know that's that gets two more inches. What have you? How does that work? Well, how it works is, and I get it to agree. Like, if there's killing, remember a couple of years ago, I don't know if you. But there was a lady that got killed in Beverly Hills at night. She was a PR lady. And it was news, and it should be news. I get that it's news, and it's big news. What what he doesn't get is why that isn't any news. You know, there was a man killed here on uh, a couple Sundays ago, 74-year-old man, Herman Johnson, worked for the city, Always did a walk. His neighbor said the nicest neighbor you could have. Sunday mornings out for his morning walk. Somebody shoots him in the back of the head on Western Avenue, 37th Street. You know, did you hear about that? 
I think I have. You know, it's wow. it's it's. I think I I think I haven't read in detail about that. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I was the only one to write about it. But that's how he feels too. So I mean, there's some similarities too. Right. You know, in a de- to a degree, you know, the very word news is something new. Right. So their line of thinking is, you know, that's not news. Right. But it is. You know, right. it right. doesn't happen ten times a day. You know. Nowadays, it happens maybe not even once a day. Right. So, I mean, it's a life. That guy, whoever it was, had a mother, had maybe had kids, had friends. The killer had kids. What happened to him? What propelled him to shoot? I'm trying to get... He tries to get into the mind of the, uh, you know, not just a gang member. Who was that person? In, in any such story, there are a number of converging stories to tell, then. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you branch it out, you know, who's investigating it, who's affected. Is How much less dangerous a place is greater Los Angeles now than the one you grew up in? Does it feel less dangerous? You know, I've been here so long, and people have gone, gone away and say, wow, Los Angeles has changed so much. I mean, I, I to me, it hasn't changed. You know, I mean, when you're here, you know, it's like, it's so gradual to change, you know. It hasn't changed that much to me. It feels yeah. like it's still essentially the same place as it was in 1972 to you? I mean, you know, it was traffic back then, more traffic now, traffic on Sundays now, you know, and it, it, it's, you know, more sprawl, but I don't know, this hasn't really changed. If you're, if you're in it, I couldn't say, you know, I mean, sure, there's been changes, you know. Different ethnic cities are here now. There's little Bangladesh, you know. There's certainly, uh, you know, I think of where I live, Koreatown, which was just getting started in, in the early 1970s, was it not? I mean, new new neighborhoods have, to some degree, emerged, right? Yes. I mean, like in, in where I grew up in Gardena, you know, the Asians were almost all Japanese. Right. You know, some Chinese, but I didn't know what a Korean, I mean, I didn't know any Koreans. Right now, we certainly you can't not know at least a, at least a few of them. I mean, they've they've had such a an impact on Los Angeles. But tell me, in, in Southside, as you as you mentioned, Mike Lyons gets shot himself early in the book, not killed, shot, uh, so he can still be the protagonist. Um, what does it what does it mean to a character like that who has covered so many shootings to take a bullet himself? It's painful. Yes. Yeah. It's just like, you know, that could happen to me. It always, I think he felt, you know, I was always in danger and here it came, you know. So it wasn't, and in the book, there's uh, his colleagues, you know, they're very stunned at the beginning and there's, you know, there's some tears and, but then they get a, you know, hey, let's get a pool. Who shot this guy, you know? The office office pool starts up and we see early on that, there are a variety of opinions in the office about Mike Lyons. Some people think he's the best they've got. Some think he's overrated. You know, it's it's what uh, what kind of a what kind of a man gets draws such a range of judgments from his colleagues. Well, I think uh, he's a personable guy with his colleagues. You know, his immediate colleagues with authority. Being an editor or any kind of authority, I'm, I don't think he's uh, a fan of, and they're not fans of his. Mm-hmm. What what does he do that they don't like? Well, for one thing, 
he doesn't kiss ass, you know, at all. If you don't say hello to him, he's not going to say hello to you, you know. You're not going to, you know, oh, here's such and such an editor, I better be nice to them. I can, he can give a fuck about an editor. You know, there's good editors, though, too, so they're just no different than anybody. I think he treats the people... A biggest editor, the same as he would the biggest janitor, you know? They're all just people around him. Yeah. It's just, you know, the janitor might be more interesting than, you know, the city editor. Right. What about these qualities makes him a good Southside crime reporter? I think his past and his uh, understanding of that community. And... uh, you know, his uh, father in the book, you know, was almost a Hells Angel. He was a mechanic for the Oakland Hells Angels. You know, he had a, a kind of a... His dad went to Vietnam. You know, there were uh, some rough times for them. And so he kind of knew it was a little bit of the dark side of uh, life. He didn't grow up, you know, in, the, in Brentwood and, uh, you know, go to journalism school. Right, right. It was not a sheltered upbringing for Mike Lyons. Tell me, getting in your own career reporting on crime and on gangs, is it is it the case that you know the closer you are to these communities, the more the more ties you have, absolutely the better? No doubt. I mean, I say that the further you get away from Watts, the worse it is. Right. You know, in terms of if you tell somebody from Chatsworth, you know, you're going to Watts, and they say, "What? You're going to Watts?" <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with you? Right, right. They think of it as something yeah. that you you just wouldn't do. But you know, did you ever feel? Have you ever felt that they, even though you need to get closer and closer to these communities where the gangs are to do your job, that you, like Mike Lyons, were thereby putting yourself in more danger the more close you were to everybody down there? Yeah, but you know, danger. I mean. Compared to what? Compared to Fallujah? You know, it's not dangerous, you know. Compared to what's going on in Aleppo right now, in Damascus, you know. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it's dangerous, you know. You do, do have to keep that, if you have a global perspective on it, it doesn't seem so bad down at Watts, does it? No, it doesn't. But, you know, for Los Angeles, you know, and not just Watts, the, the Green Meadows is a neighborhood where the book is set more in Green Meadows, which is the neighborhood just north of Watts. And... Uh, I uh, kind of got a kick out of some of the neighborhoods the city has for the rough parts of town. They tried to get away from the stigma of South Central. Yes. And, I mean, there's <laughs> I mean, there's a neighborhood there called uh, Canterbury Knolls. Canterbury Knolls, I've never heard of yeah, that one. It's like 60th and Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Century Palms, there's Century Cove, Green Meadows. How do these get their names? I don't know, man. But Canterbury Knowles, that's, that's one of my favorites. Takes the kick. Yeah. <laughs> Athens well-known, though, Athens Park. And uh, there's a few others, but yeah. But anyway, this one is in Green Meadows. The book is, a lot of it's set in Green Meadows. And it's on the very first page of the book, a, a setting. In, uh, but, you know, you just got to get to know the community. He gets to know the community. And... Uh, just trying to tell the other side of the story. What does it not from so much the police side 
of a crime story. Right. You know, right. I mean that's an easy way to do it. I mean, and, and that's the way you you need to do it. You know, I got some some friends in the port. One of my best friends, Sal LaBarbera, the homicide detective in uh, South Bureau, mm-hmm. L.A. murder cops is Twitter. He want me to tell you that. Uh, you know, you know, you have to know the police as well as the other side. I mean, ideally, you know. You can't just tell the gang side, you know, although, and sometimes the people, uh, not just the cops, but people I know say, you know, why are you close with those guys, you know, they're criminals. And, and it's like I tell them, you know, one guy, one member, gang member, Clement Johnson, Big Evil, is like a le- legendary gang member. I said, you know, I'm a, I write about gangs. If I wrote about baseball, I'd want to get to know Sandy Koufax, you right, know? exactly. They're, they're players. They're big players. Yeah. <laughs> What does it take to get a gang member to open up to you, to to tell your to to to, uh, to tell them, to tell you their story? How long a process is that to get to that point where they're going to tell you things, things that you can use, things you can make into a story? It's a long time. It's a long time. It takes a lot of trust. You know, it takes a lot of uh, respect. It takes you know not leaving the first time they say get the fuck out of here. You, you know. have to stay where you are. If you leave, then you know you can forget about ever coming back. It's just a test. They want to see if you. Well, I don't know if it's a test. I mean, you know, a lot of times they mean it. You know, it's not. They, they a lot of guys, especially young people, they can't grasp the uh, the concept of what you are. I'm a reporter. I'm. A, you know, they don't. You know, some of them. You know. They don't get it, and then also like what station, you know, what they think is the television, or you know, and their idea of the news is from television, local television news. Right. So. Interesting, you mentioned the television because reading this book, you know, I, my mind was on newspaper reporting, of course, but television news is huge here. I've never tuned into Los Angeles television news. I think partially because you hear, you know, people will talk about it as in. Describing it as essentially a way to a way to convey cheap scares, you know, terror in the Southland, death in the Southland, murder in the Southland, film at eleven. I hear it's all a lot of that. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why is it like that? I, I don't know. I guess that's what gets the ratings up. Yeah. You know, it's just that's another thing. I mean, you know, I got some friends in that world too, but it, they they're not proud of that. Some of the stuff that goes on and. You know what gets news on the television is I think that day what was it uh, one homicide I was on and there was no news about it it was a kid from Indiana who came out here got his heart broke in Fort Wayne Indiana his girlfriend cheated on him he came out here and his mom and sister were worried about him they bought him a bus pass and a train pass and don't walk around and he didn't tell him how dangerous where he was was at and one day he's walking, uh, he's got waiting for the bus on Figueroa near Imperial Highway, and they see somebody he knows, and so he goes, he doesn't have a bus pass, so he walks with him on Figueroa at 108, he gets shot and killed, right? His parent, his mom, mom and sister come out, they got this heartbroken story about this kid, no news on TV news, but Lindsay Lohan's mother arrived late in a Rolls Royce for her court date about a DUI or some. That was news. That kind of thing, kind of, you know. There is, I mean, the, the whole if it bleeds, it leads thing is common to all forms of, of journalism, I suppose. But 
It seems like on television. That's a cliche. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of bleeding that doesn't get, right. you know, leading. Right. It's certain kinds of bleeding that are that lead, as as you illustrate in Southside. But it does seem like when I hear what television described, there's 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 kind of a not just about the murders, but like the sense of there's a scary place down south you should all worry about. That that seems to be the vibe people talk about when they describe the news. I don't know if you think that is in the zeitgeist, but uh, that seems an unproductive uh, an unproductive way of covering it, doesn't it? Well, I don't know what zeitgeist means, but... Uh, uh, Popular mind, I suppose. Uh, um, you know, the other thing about them, they got, what, you know, 40 seconds to cover a story, you know, you know so... And they're packing it in. You got to get the weather and the barometric pressure, or whatever that means. I don't know why they got to mention that, but uh, you know, they they got they can't get into a story. You know? And then they got to cut to commercial. Yeah, they got to go to a commercial. So I I I and I don't want to put them down too much. So you know, it's, they're kind of forced into saying things are scary down there and leaving it at that. It's not it's not anyone's any one person's that's fault. If you get your news, then you know that's on you. You know? Yeah, so there's there's better ways to do it and it's it seems like well tell me, Mike Lyons, what, what type of what type of news story does he advocate? What type of reporting does he does does he hope to do? Does he does he aim for? Even if it gets cut down a bit, uh, literally or figuratively, in the process, you know, what is his what is what are his ideals journalistically? I think ultimately he wants to. I mean, on this he gets waylaid into you know trying to find out who shot him. He's in trouble quick. Yes, but it's the the good in the community in the South Side. It's the people that. You know, you don't hear about that are trying to make the community better. Like two real life guys, Big Donnie and Big Hank from Nickerson Gardens. I mean, they are like just, they're heroes. So, you know, they should be nationally known. They, you know, they try and keep, you know, they have, they're like 50 years old, tough guys, one hitter quitters, which is a guy that hits you one time and you quit. And, uh, they talking to the young kids out there. Don't go through this madness of you know this revolving thing of killing one back and forth. It's going on right now, and uh, you know so just the community and that it's all just one big. The whole city, it's one city. It's one huge committee com- community. Ideally, you know that can be easy to forget yeah. with a city like Los Angeles. I mean, yeah. especially here, it's hard. It's hard to get your mind around it, let alone to think of it as a community. Uh, uh, Kirk Streeter from the Times had a good, nice piece yesterday in the p- paper about these tennis kids from Jefferson High who, I don't know how they got there, but somebody invited them to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. And, you know, it was just a nice story about, you know, it's all one big community. You know, they helped them out. They had a bunch of, run, one, one of the tennis players there was playing tennis in his boots or her boots. And, you know, so they got new shoes and tennis rackets and you know, that's a nice, you know, kind of like part of what I think Lions would like ultimately mm. to have a, you know, you're doing well, good for you, you know. Mm. I'm very fortunate myself, you know, and so is he, the book. So. He's, he's, uh, you, you, I, he, he feels like he's less fortunate the moment he the, the bullet hits him, but it's there, there, he sees advantages in that as well. I mean, that's a part of that's a part of the thought here is that he does he sees that it's not all bad the way because he, he didn't die he didn't get permanently injured uh, he sees what's not all bad about it 
what's not all bad about getting shot? Yes, well, to, Mike, to Mike Lyon's mind. I mean, he's, he talks about it. Yeah, I don't recommend it to be shot, but there are in that world, if you're not hurt badly, you know, if you get, I mean, if you got grazed last night, you know, you'd tell your friends, hey, man, I got shot last night, you know. I mean, you'd have a story to tell. Right. And in the, in the book, you know, it's like, this certain badge, it's like the Marine in Ramadi or somewhere who is wounded, comes back to battle. You know, there's a certain, I don't know if mystique is the word, but there's something about being shot, and this is his thinking. And But it's, uh, you know, a bravado that when it comes down to it, you know, I don't want to get shot. He, he joins the league of guys who get shot, yeah. You know, it's very easy to say, but, you know. It's just talking, you know, but when you're actually, you know, get shot, nobody wants to get shot. Right, right. He then, he then joins, I mean, when he joins a certain, he, he rises to the ranks of the guys who have been shot, the ones who have put themselves, who have, who have been in that kind of danger, and even among the people he's covering, the gang members who have been shot, they're in a different class than the ones who haven't been, right? Yeah, they are, although some of the, you know, most storied gang members that I know in, in the book have never been shot. One of the guys in the book says, hey, I'm the king of the Hoovers. I've never been shot. I got all the respect in the world. Right. So you don't need to be shot. Ideally, you don't want to be shot. Right. <laughs> People are looking at me like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah. It's the guys who have come through essentially unscathed, you know, who's, who gets the... How do, you, how do you get the most respect in that community if you're... If you're in that world, if you if you come from being a gang member, you know what what is the what are the ways those guys get the most respect other than survival, which is pretty impressive in these contexts. Well, you have to be good with your hands, number one. You know that means you have to be a good fighter. You can't go to the gun. You know, and and you have to be intelligent and charismatic and leading and respect. It's a lot of things, but mainly, you know, you can't just. I mean, if you're the you know, six foot five, three hundred pound black belt. That's not enough. You know that helps. Yes, but couldn't hurt. But you know, you got to be intelligent. I mean, the gang leaders that I've known, they're not stupid. You know, they're not. Uh, they're sharp. You know, they might have guys with them that are bigger than them and stronger, but the actual shot caller, usually, not all the time. But some of them that I've known are. Uh, you know, if it, in a different world, it could have been a CEO somewhere, you know. They're, they're not quite the image of the gang member as being dumb and impulsive. They're, they're, these are the ones who, I mean, maybe some gang members are, surely, but the guys at the top, they could do anything. They're like, I mean, a few of them, they're a combination of guys from The Wire. Oh, yes. I don't know if you're familiar with The Wire. I've seen a bit of it, but would you consider that to be a... a many call it a very accurate program in terms of the way it, it uh, deals with crime, law enforcement, all that. Would you say the same? I, the Wire just about cost me my relationship because uh, all I would do was watch it over and over again, and she'd come home and said, not the same episode of The Wire again. So, a true endorsement. So, I mean, me and The Wire is just like there's nothing... To compare to it, what does it get right? What is the, what is so right about the wire? Well, I mean, first the writers, you know, the writers are some of the best crime novelists. You know, George Pelicanos was involved with it. 
Um, What's this? David Simon comes from reporting. He's a reporter, and then, you know, just the casting and just the, the, it's just, I don't know, it's just everything about it. It's just, you know, nothing compares it. You know, that's my world, too, so. What what do you remember from it, something that you could point to and say, or you said the first time, "That's, that's absolutely right, no one else has got that right, but this is my world, and they understand this part of my world that no other film, television seems to, you know, it's, what, what is what is especially truthful about The Wire? God, there's so many different parts of it. To, to, to point out one thing, there's one uh, shootout, I think in season three, and it's such this wild shootout, and there's so many bullets being fired, and nobody gets hit. The only person that gets hit is a baby, you know, up in a, being, you know, stashed away by his mom, her mom. You know, in the second floor. And it's just, you know, it's not like regular movies where five people get killed. You know, that that's just one. I mean, every single episode, there's things in there uh, about, uh, you know, what it's like. You know, that's just a... Tell, tell me about the balance or how you wanted to integrate truth and fiction and South Side. Because there's real things, real places, real people in here. There's also fictional people fictional events how did you want to do that when you started out what were you thinking in terms of I, I want to use I want to pull this much straight from reality and I want to bring this much in for my imagination how did that work for you well I wanted it to be you know my imagination just based on what I knew as you know as the truth so it's just a combination you know I, it may have been more fun to I don't know about more fun, but to try to totally thing that was just no basis of reality to it. But for me, I couldn't have done. I can't do that. You know, maybe one of these days I can. And I have, you know, years ago when I was a kid. But uh, I just wanted it. You know, maybe the wire was an influence, but the, well, I was writing it. You know, while the wire, I didn't, you know, before the wire and during the wire. So I guess the wire wasn't an influence, not I think about it, you know? Is there, for everything that happens in this book, is there some reference you can point to in, in reporting, things you heard about, things you saw happen? Things, are there versions, are there versions of everything that's happened, that happens in this book that you know happened in real life? Do you know what I mean? Like, is, is it all? Well, some of it, you know, like a lot of it happened in real life. Like, there's a photographer. Uh, Boris Yarrow, and he took uh, one of the pictures of uh, Bobby Kennedy bleeding at the Ambassador Hotel's famous shot. <laughs> anyway, I drank a lot at, on the job, and uh, I think he smelled whiskey on I me. Mean, he came over and said, "Man, you got to drink vodka; it doesn't smell." Yeah, you know, the advice he gives to Mike Lyons here. Yeah, so that happens. Things happen. And, and you realize that vodka doesn't smell like whiskey, but it still fouls your mouth a little bit. And, but you know, a lot of it happened. A lot of it, you know, a lot of it could. It all could happen. Though that's it's it's all grounded in. It, 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 it wasn't in the story if, if it didn't go. You know, it went, just because it happened, it didn't blend in with what happened in, in the in the book. You know, it went. It went. The things that go in. You know. I mean, there was a lot of things I considered, but it, you know, it didn't go in. Right. It's it's what's fascinating. There was a lot of made-up stuff that I wanted in, but they didn't they didn't go in. You know, like that old saying about taking out the best parts of your babies or 
think anything's particularly good, worry about that part because you know that that might be the might be the one that fools you. But tell me how how big a reader of crime novels have you been? I'm a slow reader, you know, I'm, and I'm not well read with the classics. You know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and Les Miserables. Those are my three favorite books. But in the '90s, uh, I got into uh, Michael Connelly. Oh uh, yes, and he's, he's blurbed your book, so that's come full circle. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Concrete Blonde. And then I read, went back and read all his books, and. So he's, I think that he was the one that first kind of got me into rereading and reading crime novels. And then from him, you know, I, he went from Raymond Chandler to writing. I, I kind of went back to Raymond Chandler, you know. He went back to the classic, classic, classic Los Angeles crime novels. Yeah. And, you know, and then you could read Raymond Chandler right now. It's just, it's just beautiful. But then the other ones, Pelicanos, uh, Robert Craze. James Lee Burke, John Sanford with the Prey books, that kind of thing. So, and I, I enjoyed reading those. I, I'm just a slow reader. I'm, so, a careful reader, you could say. But I, mean, I like to read a nonfiction. Usually, have maybe have a nonfiction going to like. I mean, one of my all-time favorite books is Sea Biscuit. Yeah. I love that book. What What got you thinking? You wanted to write specifically a crime novel. I knew it. I know crime, and I wanted no novels. So that's where, that's where your head is. It's in the world of crime. Tell me then, reading all those crime novels you went back to, especially the ones about Los Angeles. What did they make you think was still possible? What was still ground that a crime novel needed to cover in Los Angeles? This, because clearly, you saw you saw where. One more story could be told. How did you realize that that's that there was space for that additional Los Angeles crime story that's not like any of these others? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm not that haven't read all the books, but uh, you know, all the detective books. You know, this was more from a reporter than uh, a detective. Well, Conley wrote a book, The Poet, which I that got into big time as. Uh, so the, the element was combining the reporter with uh, that part of town. You know? I see. It's, it's, I, you make me realize. I, I don't I mean Walter Mosley writes about it and writes about it so well, but it's set, set earlier. And, uh, you know, his guy is a detective, right? Easy Rollins and, and uh, Socrates and all those guys. I mean, I like those books big time, you know. But this is a more modern set, you know, a combination of reporter in the streets. Yes, it is indeed extremely modern. It's set this very year, 2013. I mean, tell me about Los Angeles of right now as a setting for a novel. You mentioned that you don't think it's changed much, but surely you had to look pretty closely at how Los Angeles is at this moment. And you saw, you must have seen something about what it's like right now that it that is different about this period than any other period. You have to identify that to set a novel there. The novel here and now, I suppose. Well, what what is different about L.A. than, say, 20 years ago? It's like yesterday, this guy Nick, he's a bartender, Mozart, he's, we, I, he asked me what I did, I was telling him about a couple of 
killings that I heard about. And he goes, well, it's a lot better than it was 20 years ago. And in terms of numbers, yeah, it is, you know, unless you're the one that gets shot, you know. So, you know, in terms of numbers, you know, there used to be 2,000 killings a year in the county here. You know, now, right now, it's, I think, close to 500. For them, 500, you know. So, I don't know what's changed is more awareness, more community involvement, more in Watts than, than uh, other parts. You know, the downtown is supposedly changing and, you know, you know, there's more places downtown, but we've been hearing that all my whole life, you know. I mean, it's never going to be Chicago or New York. I don't care what they say. San Francisco. But, you know, it's our city. I love it. It's not given away by his name necessarily, but Mike Lyons is, is Armenian-American. Uh, half. Half, half, indeed. But he, that, uh, does, is half Arme- that still counts as Armenian-American, does it not? It's, it's a, half Armenian, Armenian-American. Tell me what that means to him, that part of his heritage. Well, I think what it means to him is that being that where he covers is black and Spanish, Mexican mainly, that he's not white, you know, even though he's half white and he looks white, you know, he thinks of himself as Armenian and, you know, a connection to the Middle East, Armenia, you know, not that Armenia is technically the Middle East, but that part of the world that he's uh, not some white guy from Brentwood, there we go with Brentwood again, but, uh, you know, that even though your first impression of him over there on 88th Street or 89th Street is here's a white guy. His mind is that he's Armenian, which makes him a little not so much the uh, establishment. He has an identity that is not just here's he's he's not he's not he's an outsider in the communities he covers, but he's not directly opposed. You know what I mean? He's not the opposition. Yeah, I mean, they, he, he tries to think that. They, they they don't know that. He's not the opposition, you know. He has the psychological edge, but it's Armenians seem to me to be one of the best known of uh, demographic groups here in Los Angeles, but maybe perhaps not as well not as well known as, you know, you mentioned that from various Spanish-speaking countries, certainly, but also the Japanese or the Koreans. There's been, it feels like there's been more Armenian influence in Los Angeles than people even realize if they're not from that community. Would you say that? Influence in terms of uh, politics or government or Any, business? Or anything. I mean, it, it's, it seems like... I think we're kind of underrepresented and are under, I don't know about valued, but, you know, you know the uh, influx of Armenians in the early 90s from uh, mainly when the Soviet Union was breaking up. It brought a lot of people to East Hollywood, and with that, it was the classic story of, you know, a handful of them were being, uh, protecting some who were being picked on. And they were originally, you know, defenders, and these defenders evolved into a street gang called Armenian Power. And, you know, it was a shock to the older school Armenians that, you know, Armenians were being arrested and being, you know, 
put in jail because they were very proud that back in the my uncle Harry would tell me like in the I think it was in the 40s like there was no Armenians you know that somebody told me I don't know if it's true no Armenians in jail you know yeah that was a point of pride in any case that they were we stayed out of trouble the Armenians now if you you know it's not that way anymore right so you know, there's it's a, it's part of being in a big city. It's the classic immigration story of the Lower East Side. You know, the Irish coming in are the Italians. You know, that's what we the Armenians went through in East Hollywood. You know? So, but the, you know, there's uh, the culture's there. You know, it's little Armenia. You know, we're in Glendale, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I rode my bike through Little Armenia to get here, and we're in Glendale now. I mean, it's... But you you're, you are so experienced in, in restaurant culture, plus you have an Armenian background. What People listening, what do you... Where do you recommend they go to eat Armenian food? Not even doesn't have to be a specific place, but neighborhoods or streets or... What, what should they keep in mind if they're going to eat Armenian food? Well, my place is Carousel the, on Hollywood Boulevard in Normandy. So, uh, I mean, I, I go there, and my girlfriend loves to get the Polo Albras's Peruvian Chicken Place on 8th and Western. Yeah, I go there all the time. You live, right? You live right like a walk there. Polo a roast chicken, and then like four sa- uh, meza uh, from Carousel. Uh, dips are like... The muhammar, it's a red bell pepper, will come. Walnut. She combines the two places into one. Yeah, so we have like a spread of four or five dips, Armenian and Peruvian. It's a good uh, at-home, small party, or two-people dinner. I feel like, and, and, you know, for 30 bucks, you're set. I feel like there's few more Los Angeles dinners you could have than that. Would you agree in Armenian? Yeah, that's, you know... That's what makes it an interesting place. I mean, that's representative of why it's an interesting place to set a novel, is it not? There's so much here, you know. I mean, you could write forever about the different cultures here. You know that. I would guess you have plans to write around us here. There's uh, Marcella's Fashion, Dinah's Southern Fried Chicken, VK's Market. Who knows who that VK is? Have you started writing the next one? Yeah, I got. The, the plan was to write four books. The next one's West Side, set in uh, Mapleton Drive in Homeby Hills, the most exclusive neighborhood. And then uh, I'm almost done with that. So, do we expect a uh, the other two quadrants to uh, yeah. make their appearances North as well? Side and East Side. There's no one. Who knows what happens? many parts of Los Angeles to cover. I've been speaking here with Michael Krikorian. He is the author of Southside and a longtime reporter on gangs and crime, native of Los Angeles. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, coming to you from Adina's Chicken in Glendale. I've been Colin Marshall. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org, more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.